the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. Karen! Oh, where's the stuff that I left, Karen? I flushed it down the toilet. You what? Did Why I did you do that, that Karen? <laughs> Welcome to the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Podcast, the podcast of clean and sober, K-L-E-N and S-O-B-R, and SinceRightNow.com, with your hosts in recovery, Jeff, Matt, and Chris. With our guest tonight, author speaker, and activist, Brian Cuban. Tonight on the Since Right Now podcast, we have Brian Cuban, who is a recovery warrior, um, a, you know, a journey through clinical depression, eating disorders, body dysmorphic disorder, alcohol and drug addiction. It's, I mean, you know, yeah. you want recovery, this man knows recovery. Um, welcome, Brian. Thanks hey, for thanks us. for having me on, guys. Yeah, it's funny when you read all that stuff and you're like, "Wow, you have been through a lot," you know? Oh, I look back on it and it's um, kind of, you know, I'm amazed at myself that I'm sitting here with my cat on my lap. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, I like to tell a joke. I, you know, when I speak, I say, "Let's take a time trip back to Vegas, 2004. Walk into a casino to the sports book." And if you could place your bet on your favorite sports team winning the championship uh, this year and my being alive this year, you'd get better odds in 2004 on your sports team. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Well, I mean, it is astonishing. I mean, uh, 18-year-old – is 18 – on on your site I was reading, it says 18-year-old anorexic bulimic. Is that when – Yeah, it hit you? Everything hit sort of – 18 is when I discovered restricting. Okay. Uh, and then I transitioned to bulimia in uh, 19 as a, as a, actually probably towards the end of my freshman year and my sophomore year at Penn State. Okay. And I wouldn't go into recovery for that till 2007, along oh. with all the other stuff. Wow. So, ha- a lot of it had its genesis in, you know, the envi- I'll talk about the environment. Uh, there was a lot of, I was a very shy child, the middle child. Okay. Uh, you know, I have an older brother. People know Mark from Shark Tank and stuff. Oh, sure. And I have a younger brother, Jeff. I was very shy. Okay. And I had a difficult relationship with my mom. And I want to make it clear that parents don't cause eating disorders. Parents don't cause addiction. Right. Parents can make it tougher if, you know, if you're not laying the groundwork into recovery. Mm-hmm. But we don't know how genetics interacts with environment. Mm-hmm. And certainly not for eating disorders. Sure. But – I had a very difficult relationship with my mom. There was a lot of fat shaming and Mm. that caused me to eat and gain weight. And then the bullying started in school and it got to the point where I was even physically assaulted because people thought I looked funny because I was heavy. And that all sort of came together with my middle child personality to sink me in a body dysmorphic disorder decades before it was really even yeah, you know, what that in the was. limelight, yeah. mm-hmm. even though the disorder itself, body dysmorphia, has been around for over 100 years. Wow. So I was an 18-year-old kid who started to see this kind of monster every time he saw his reflection, whether it was in a mall window 
or in the bathroom door mirror. Hmm. And every time I saw myself, I had this overwhelming feeling that I had this huge stomach. Hmm. No matter how thin I got, no matter how muscular I got, I abused steroids as well. Almost lost my leg from steroid addiction. And so that was kind of how body dysmorphia affected me. And for people who don't know what body dysmorphia is, it's when you take a smaller non-existent defect in your body and you exaggerate it to the point where it affects your ability to function, quote unquote, normally in life. For me, it was my stomach. For some people, it's a blemish and they abuse plastic surgery. I actually did that too. I had plastic surgery till I went broke. Wow. People do drugs. I did that. People Get, do alcohol, drink alcohol. I did that. Yeah. And people commit suicide. And I came close to that. It's, About two to 4% of the population are affected by body dysmorphic disorder, men and women equally. So, wow. so this, did this did disorder start the addiction process? Like this was the first thing that, that you came in contact with. Yes. Co-occurring or yeah. But yeah. Basically body dysmorphic disorder is, can be co-occurring with a lot of different things. Yeah. 30% get eating <laughs> disorders. There is a big mis- misconception that body dysmorphic disorder is an eating disorder. It's not. Right. It co-occurs with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. A percentage will uh, go into drug addiction, uh, substance abuse, substance use disorder, uh, as I should say, uh, alcohol use disorder, uh, plastic surgery abuse. So there is a correlation mm-hmm. between all of these and body dysmorphic uh, disorder. Mm-hmm. It, it, and what I did was I cycled through all these behaviors. Yeah kind of trying to fix myself before, you know, there was really help available and it was really even talked about. I mean, this was 1979, 1980. Yeah. Did you know I, something was wrong? Like, did you feel something was wrong or did this just seem normal to you? Like I felt I was wrong. I thought yeah. I, I felt like I was a monster. I felt like wow. I was unloved. I felt like I was unwanted mm-hmm. and that the only way I could be loved and wanted was to, change what I saw in the mirror. But no matter what I did to myself, whether it was restricting, binging and purging, getting drunk, doing cocaine, steroids, the, the image never changed. Yeah. And that's kind of what body dysmorphic disorder is. Wow. I even joined the Marines. Wow. So, so you that's serious. Myself. You were in absolutely great shape and you'd look at yourself in the mirror and it wouldn't compute. That's right. That's I mean, I had gotten down to, I was restricting I had uh, become exercise bulimic, running 10 to 20 miles a day, running marathon after marathon. Wow. But I was also kind of a, uh, always a tall guy and a big mm-hmm. bone guy. Mm-hmm. So I went from 260 as my high as a teen down to the high 170s, and you got compliments, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't the stereotypical rib-showing anorexic. Right. And that's a big misconception because weight is only one element of an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Most bulimics are at weight or overweight. Binge eating an eating disorder, at weight or overweight. Mm-hmm. So we have the stereotype of the anorexic guy or girl, mm-hmm. you know, with the ribs showing, and that isn't everyone with an eating disorder. Yeah, and I'm just about being a male in this world, right? Right. Okay. And this was back in a time, do you yeah. guys know who Karen Carpenter is? Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, she passed away in 1983. And brought kind of brought eating disorders into the national spotlight in the pre-internet world, mm-hmm. pre-digital world. And this was before even that. When I became bulimic, bulimia had only been a clinical diagnosis for four or five years. Wow. So I didn't know what yeah. the words were. I just knew that 
the act of binging and purging kind of made me feel okay for a few seconds. Mm. But as we know, but as people who have been through it may know, when those few seconds go away, yeah. shame fills the void. Sure. Mm-hmm. When you come down off the cocaine high, shame, shame. fills the void. Yeah. When you're hungover, you know, after the all night binge, like I did so many times, shame fills the void. So mm. you have to have that feeling again and again and again, you know, that before the shame, the mm. life of an addict, the life of a bulimic. So, so the it's interesting trying to put these two together because I think we can all relate to this the idea of addiction and this complete lack of choice and lack of control when it comes to using. Is that the way it feels in the with the body image? Like you just can't do? Do you have this sense of like this isn't true, but I can't stop myself from behaving this way? Or is it? Or is it true in your mind? Early on, in my yeah. mind, it was true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It didn't become untrue until I went into therapy. Mm-hmm. And early on, it was that is what I believed I was. I mean, your, your mind you know, has a way of taking over yeah. and you become your thoughts. Yeah. And so in my mind, the, the thought process was how can I love myself? How can I sure. feel accepted? How can I change my thought so I don't see that. And my answer was, you know, eating disorders, drugs, alcohol, steroids, because I didn't know, I didn't know any better. It was a completely normal thing to me. Mm-hmm. Eating disorder, my bulimia was like breathing. Wow. Cocaine good. addiction was like breathing, you know, and you become very good at just isolating and living a life that makes it normal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Right. Is, is there like, are, are there win, windows, what just think about it, all these things co-occurring. I mean, and, and they all are well, inter- intertwined, you, I'm the, sure. Uh, yeah. Let me give you the chronological history okay. of yeah. what went down. Yeah. Yeah. At 18, as a freshman at Penn State, I started restricting. Going into my sophomore year, I began binging and purging. By the time I was 22, I was an al- full-blown alcoholic at Penn State. Oh, wow. By the, at 17, I, I mean, at 27, I discovered cocaine, was instantly a cocaine addict the yeah. first time yeah. in the bathroom of a restaurant in Dallas, Texas. Anyone says you can't become addicted the first time needs to talk to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. By 30, I was abusing steroids at 45 or 44, 45. I'd become so hopeless that I would never see a normal Brian in the mirror that I became suicidal. And my two brothers came in my house and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand and hauled me down to a psychiatric facility, kicking and screaming my first of two trips to a psychiatric facility. And then in 2007, uh, after two failed marriages, one more, I get a free set of steak knives. <laughs> That's cool. Or actually, was it? Let's say I didn't know that. I didn't know actually, you got steak knives. Failed. That's awesome. I, I don't even remember my failed marriages anymore. It was three failed marriages. <laughs> three? Oh, all right. Well, so they, how are the knives? Should, yeah, you should have got the knives by now, I'm, I have to say. <laughs> and, 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 you know, they were all doomed from the start because sure. I didn't love myself. And anyone who's been in a, who doesn't love themselves who's been in a relationship understands you put up a wall mm-hmm. and no relationship can survive like that because eventually it's going to become, you don't love me. Right. And you're not going to tell them that you, it's yourself you don't love. So you let it take the path of least resistance to divorce. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You don't want to open yourself up because in your mind, you're going to get the same response that you projected out on your life. You're fat, ugly, and stupid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you did you hide all of this when you were getting married? Did they know what what this was all about? No, they didn't know. They I mean, know. I had 
very good routines of doing drugs, doing my cocaine mm -hmm. and uh, the drinking. I was, you know, I, I don't want to get into, you know, the, the personalities sure. of exes, sure. but I was, I was very good at camouflaging all sure. of this. Yeah. Sure. And we all kind of developed that natural ability to, yeah. to you know, That's do whatever right. it takes to protect our, our illness. And, and then finally in April 7th, 2007, I had a two day uh, alcoholic and drug induced blackout. While my girlfriend, now my fiance, she stood with me. Mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and watched this town. Right now? Wow. Yeah, she stood with me for nine years. Well, she was out of town. And then I went back to the psychiatric facility for the second time. That is when I finally started getting honest with my shrink, my family. I went into 12 step and never looked back. Yeah, that's was there a moment where the clarity hit, or was it just kind of this? Uh, no, there know? was a moment. Yeah. I was standing in the parking lot of Green Oak Psychiatric Facility in Dallas, Texas, mm -hmm. my second trip there. My girlfriend was crying, and I'm thinking, well, she's gone, but she stood by me. Mm. And I realized there wasn't going to be a third trip back there. But you know what scared me more than that, guys? I'm thinking in the parking lot that I, would, I finally reached the time where love enablement and recovery had come together in my family. I was going to lose my family. Because, mm -hmm. you know, family may love you unconditionally, but there may be limits – on their willingness to watch you destroy your life. Exactly. If you're not going to at least try to take that first step forward in recovery, and it doesn't have to be a big step, but they at least want to see some effort. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had never taken any of those steps. I was never willing to. Mm -hmm. The first, moving backwards, the first trip to the psychiatric facility, you know, my brothers are hauling me down there, and I'm a lawyer, so I knew what to say. So they, <laughs> you know, hold me down there. Yeah. And we really didn't, you know, they didn't, my family's no different than anyone else. We didn't understand recovery, didn't really have a good grasp on enablement. So we wanted, it was the Cuban rehab. We'll take your keys, <laughs> drive you back to your house, stay there for two weeks and you'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my thought was, that's fine. My drug dealer delivers. That's no problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that really didn't take. <laughs> and it wasn't my brother's fault. I sure. mean, all families struggle with this. Mm -hmm. And it's no one can make me recover but me, right? Exactly. So no one can control an addict. And I just wasn't ready at that time. But on April 7, 2007, as I stood in that parking lot at Green Oak Psychiatric Facility in Dallas, Texas, and I thought about the thought of I thought about losing my family, and I thought about my father. My father was the middle of three children, mm. is the middle of three children. He's 89 years old, World War II Pacific vet, Korean War vet. And growing up, he would say to us all the time, he would say, Mark Jeff Bryan, he would go, wives may come and go. And yeah, for me, they have. <laughs> <laughs> you hope they don't. Girlfriends may come and go. You hope they don't. Right. But when push comes to shove, all you have is each other. Yeah. So no matter where you go in life, no matter what happens, you stay close, you pick up that phone, and you call and you tell the other brother you love him. Mm. You ask how the other brother is doing. And he pounded this into us all the time. Mm. And I thought about that in that parking lot. And I realized that I was in danger of breaking up what our dad had instilled in us. Wow. And I couldn't mm. let that happen. So you guys were incredibly close, I guess. Well, we're, I mean, we have, yeah. we grew up, we were stair step. We have our own, we, you know, we had our own sets of friends. Right. We had our own lives, but we are close. Yeah. Let me, let me give you the end result of all that. All these decades later, mm. 
Mark, Jeff, my father and I all live within walking distance of each other. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's, that's no accident. There you yeah. go. That that's speaks really volumes. Fantastic. And that was what turned me around on April 7th, 2007. That finally convinced me that I had to get honest with the people who were trying to help me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. I had been seeing a psychiatrist for and a lying. few years getting treatment for depression, talking about failed marriages, but never divulging yeah. my true pain, mm. never divulging my childhood pain, mm. never divulging my addictions, my eating disorders, my alcohol, just give me antidepressants, mm-hmm. which there's nothing wrong with taking. I take them today every day. Sure. And they saved my life. Right. But finally I opened up to him and he's like, okay, Brian, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. But we have a problem. I'm like, what's the problem? You're a freaking drug addict and alcoholic. And he kind of said it just like that. (laughs) I said, well, no, I'm not. I'm a lawyer. He said, well, you might have been a lawyer one time, but this is your identity now. You're an addict and alcoholic. And we talked about rehab. I was totally resistant to that, totally resistant. My family was pushing for it too because in my mind at that moment, I was in pain, but I really hadn't acknowledged I was an addict. Mm -hmm. Okay. So or an alcoholic. Yeah. So you didn't know that or it wasn't apparent at that moment. It wasn't apparent to me at that moment. Yeah. Sure. We talked about 12 step. He goes, Brian, there's a meeting right next door. And there is right next door to his office. Go right now. Go. Just get up and go. I'm not going over there. I see sterno bums. I see, I see homeless people. <laughs> right. I'm, those people. I'm not going in there. Right. I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. He's like, yes, you are. You are those people. Yeah. They're just like you. Uh. <laughs> and um, I, that was like, okay, a kind of a profound moment. So I did, I walked on over to there. I walked on over there after a period of time of kind of fake walking down the hallway, walking into the deli next door, pretending I wasn't walking in. Finally, I worked up the courage to walk down that hallway into the meeting, yeah. knew half the people in there. Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. And I'm sure they were not surprised to see you. And I took my, and I took my desire and I took my desire chip, and that was April 8th, 2007. And yeah. since then, I have not had a drink. I have not done cocaine, and I have not binged and purred. Wow. All and three, it's huh? Like that easy is just like boom. Yeah. It's hard because there was a lot of therapy. Uh, you know, I did my 90 and 90. Mm-hmm. What, was the, what was the hardest of all those to, like, not recover from, but just to sort of give up and make peace with? The cocaine and alcohol, because that was the life I had created for myself. I didn't know any other life. Mm -hmm. I was terrified of life without these people that did drugs and drank. Well, and you've mentioned uh, shyness or I imagine, I mean, for me, this is Chris and, you know, I'm very open about being having social anxiety um, on the podcast and on social media. And then I think I saw a tweet earlier today where you also, or, or this week where you mentioned that you were also an introvert. Um, and so, you know, certainly alcohol and cocaine are two great, uh, absolutely mitigators it, of both of those things. Absolutely. Um, Here's the way I put it. The reason I became addicted to cocaine instantly, it's be- because it was the one thing that for that 20 seconds or over how long that high lasted, I was instantly a Mac daddy, a good looking guy, (laughs) and I was ready to rock the world. Yeah. I had to have that every day again and again and again because otherwise I would hate, I hated myself. 
and it was the only time I didn't hate myself was when I was on a cocaine high. Mm. But of course, when the cocaine high wears off, you know, the, you're, I, you're ashamed. Right. Well, the hate comes hate rushing in. Yeah. yeah you're, you're ashamed. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I back to that 16 year old boy's little boy. Mm hmm. So it was just a vicious cycle, mm-hmm. a vicious cycle. What, was there, is there anyone else in your family with addiction or alcoholism? Is there any history of it or did it? Nope. Yeah. Nope. There's some history of mental illness on my mom's side. Her yeah. grandmother was mm-hmm. bipolar. Her mother was bipolar. Mm-hmm. But there's, well, we say I'm an alcoholic family and I'm the alcoholic. <laughs> uh, yeah, <that's, laughs> yeah. is, is the body dysmorphic disorder, is that considered a psychological problem or is it a Yes, it's a DSM-5 problem? disorder. Okay. It's part of the obsessive compulsive disorder spectrum. Gotcha. Okay. And all these things can happen from it. Yes. That's interesting. And are you still going? Are you going to meetings now? Do you go? To yes, Tulsa? I went today. Uh, right. go, I, I, I go as many as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time that I got away from it. And this was just actually recently. I'd got away from going a lot, and then my dog died uh, mm. six weeks ago. And it was he, she was my best friend, mm-hmm. was with me for, through all the hard times. And I work at home, and she's with me every day. And it was I took it very hard, and thoughts of going out went through my mind. Yeah. Thoughts of suicide went through my mind. Uh, I knew how to deal with them now. Yeah, I, I had the tools to deal with them, but those thoughts made me realize that I had got no too far away from my program yeah so you kind of went back or just so i, was, so I, pick so up I went back yeah that's great i started rereading the big book and yeah. i went back and i tried to refocus on what got me there you know what got me here in the first place yeah. mm-hmm. you, you know uh this is uh, chris again also i i i don't know if you're aware i'm the that sort of outlier in that I'm the non um, 12 step guy. I've never, I've been to three meetings in my 18 years of sobriety and they've both been, or they've all been this year, all three of them. Um, and that was more just out of curiosity. So also the first guest we had on the podcast was a friend of mine who goes to all the A's like OA and yes. NA and, you know, um, do you participate in different Anonymous? I, I don't even no, know how, do have not. the words I for not. it. Okay. I, I see a psychiatrist and I go to AA and that's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and AA, my view on AA is, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I, my first year in AA, I wrote a, I wrote a, my, one of my first blog, one of my first blog posts on the subject, mm-hmm. my year in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got just ripped to shreds. You need to go on my blog and look at the comments mm-hmm. because I outed myself and I broke the, you know, and they're yeah. in the mind of the traditionalists, I broke the 11 tradition. Yeah. But as we as we see today in the up and coming kids in the colleges, right. you're getting away from that because anonymity breeds stigma. Exactly. So from that standpoint, I have a very different view of AA and that I don't agree with interpreting the 11th tradition that way. I don't believe it was meant to be interpreted that way. Yeah, I, agree I don't think you. we should encourage being a secret handshake society. Yeah. Right. But the connection, the connections part of AA saved my life. Yeah, is um so I'm sure you, the blog I I saw I listened watched the videos that you had done so the book you wrote kind of came from this blog and I I can't imagine the amount of people that it's helped I mean do you just get people telling you that all the time now and then I do yeah. I do I get I get I get very nice comments yeah I get emails and they come from the areas you least expect them to I'll give you an example. I spoke to a lawyer's group. This was sometime last year. I spoke to a lawyer's lunch, a family law event. Very stuffy. You know, you speak and everyone goes back to work. (laughs) And part of the talk was this family talk about my father. 
I get back on Twitter and this young girl tweets me. She goes, you don't know me, but my father was at your luncheon talk and I want to thank you. We were having dinner together for the first time in a year. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So that wasn't on my mind when I talked about it, but yeah. you just never know because I get emails about bullying. I get emails about people who are having uh, steroid use issues. Mm-hmm. So you just never know what message people are going to receive when I talk. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the spectrum of recovery that that you you have ex- literally have I mean experience across such a wide spectrum that I mean, you're like a recovery champion. Um, I, yeah, I don't know about that. I <laughs> I, I cycled through a lot of things. Yeah. I, I self harm. I have that wasn't even in my old book. Oh. I used to punch myself my fa- in the face until oh I was my back God. blue. Wow. I was I just moved to Dallas, and I remember that I in Dallas like it's. The highways to me were like runways coming from Pittsburgh. Right. And when you miss an exit, it seemed like the next exit wasn't until 15 miles down. Yeah. <laughs> I was late for a job interview and I missed an exit and I started punching myself in the face oh. until I was black and blue and wow. I hit side window and lost control of my car. Wow. And I had, I had repressed these memories about punching myself in the face hmm. until I read an article about James Gandolfini, the actor who had passed mm-hmm. away. Yeah, It was an article in Rolling Stone where his wife talked about James punching himself in the face when he made mistakes on scripts. Interesting. And I read that article and all of these incidents came rushing back to me wow. where I would punch myself in the face where I had been felt I had been stupid. Wow. And you didn't remember any of that. Mom, my mom used to call me a dumb bunny growing up. That's and when I, when I talk about mm. my mom... I need to make it clear. I don't blame my mom for any of my stuff. Yeah. Okay. Environment happens. Life happens. This is the way my mom was treated by her mom. Right. You know, that's the way her mom was treated by her mom. This kind of talk was passed down through generations, as is often the case. Mm-hmm. And I get asked, how did Mark and Jeff respond? I have no idea how they perceive life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I only have my view. Yeah. The, the, you told that... It's so interesting. One of the stories I heard you tell in that video, the, just the chaos of addiction was the 2006 ticket cocaine oh, dealer yeah, story. Yeah, which yeah. And it was like a typical, it started as a typical story, and then it just got crazy. Like the, the absolute craziness. The insanity of, of addiction. And oh, my God. The chaos of addiction. And, and it was crazy. I, I've waited a long time to tell that story because I wanted enough time past not to embarrass my family. Sure, right. sure. But, and that's why it wasn't in the book. But it was. I, I mean... I was trading my drug dealer, the guy that delivered my uh, maps tickets for scalpers prices in cocaine. Then I would hide the cocaine and all these fake electrical outlets that I drilled <laughs> all over the house. And then I would do a little and get panicky about what I had done. And then I would go back all through the house and gather back all the cocaine and flush it down the toilet. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Well, you know, and I'd say we're incredulous. Oh my gosh! But we've all, yeah, we can all absolutely relate yeah. on some scale. Yeah, but you did yeah, that twice, was. right? That was the funny part. Like why? And I did it twice. Yeah, like you did it the next day. You got up and, and did the exact same thing for again. The next game, I traded for the tickets. Oh, put it in all the outlets. I did a few lines. Felt terrible about what I'd done. Yeah, and flushed it all down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just you know, classic. We have a saying here in Dallas that Ugh. when uh, Dallas when Dallas flushes, it goes down to Houston. A lot of people in Houston got really high that night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that 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 just insanity 
was and just, we all have those really, stories. We yeah. all have those stories. Yeah, and, th- and thank God we do, and thank God we laugh about it. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, what's yeah. the alternative? But No, you're right, and we all have this. And, and I think back about the serious times or the times where I sure. could have picked out a family, mm-hmm. the times where I drove coked up, the times where I drove. Mm-hmm. I got my DWI back in 1990, and it didn't teach me a thing. Mm-hmm. And all those times, I thank God that I did not hurt anyone. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's a, that's actually how I stopped doing cocaine and, and ecstasy, which happened right before I, I stopped drinking, was I was driving home on cocaine and ecstasy uh, down a freeway in the middle of the night. And I, I call it the repugnant deal because I made a deal with somebody somewhere that if I made it home without killing myself or anyone else, I would quit doing drugs. And uh, and I, I kept my word, but you know it's just ridiculous to to I was doing. And, and it was, and, and, and as as a lot of addicts can testify, yeah. we make it home, and the proof is that we're not addicted is that we made it home. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> we're ready to rock and roll again the next time. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you mentioned uh, you know saving that story until enough time had passed with your family, but was your family? I mean, they were aware that something was going on throughout all those years. That were they well, aware that Brian was out of control, or were you hiding it that well? Well, when I went into college, mm. you know, at Penn State, yeah. I, they were—I wasn't with my family. That's exact good point. I mean, we—it's it's funny. I remember probably 1980 or 81, and I was yeah. drunk, and I walked into a hamburger joint at Penn State, and you know, the, the, the 12 step groups at that time, they put out the racks of the pamphlets mm. and these different hamburger joints and stuff, you know, the 20 questions. Hmm. So <laughs> I pick out a pamphlet and I'm drunk and I look at the, you know, answer this many of these questions. You might be an alcoholic. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And I just crumpled it up and threw it away. Now I'm just a college student. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I've lied on those tests and yeah. still yeah, been diagnosed yourself, as you've an alcoholic in yeah. your own head. Right. That's right. That's right. So, <laughs> I, I, I remember looking at that as early as 1980, you know, and it's like, you know, the saying, you're not an, you're not an alcoholic until you graduate. Well, let me tell you something. There are a lot of alcoholic students, a lot of binge drinking alcoholics, mm-hmm. and it's a terrible problem on campus today. Yeah, yeah no question about it. And, and, it's been, and it's been a problem for some time, and the statistics have played that out time and time again. But binge drinking was part and parcel of being a college kid. It's very yeah. easy to justify in that context. You know? That's right. And, and now we have more awareness, however, and we have more treatment options. Right. Now we have peer recovery on campus in many colleges mm-hmm. where we have groups that bring mm-hmm. in students that right. welcome students who are coming back from recovery. Were you know, to integrate them back into a different environment. Exactly. My day, <laughs> forget it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's just such a foreign concept. And we had uh, Ivana Grohovac. Um, She's Tra- a good friend. I, I love Ivana. Okay. Well, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we had her on. Uh, I don't know about a couple month ago, ago. maybe more. Yeah. A couple months. And uh, yeah, it's just a phenomenal organization. Yes, yeah. I'm on the board of YPR. Oh, oh you are. Okay. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, really admirable and necessary. Uh, stuff. So I'm curious as you go through all this, was there a moment where you're like, I need to get my story out. I need to write this book. I need people to know that. Yeah. Uh, and just to open up on the eating disorder. I yeah. went public. That's on my the main eating. thing. I mean, that, that seems to me the one that's least talked about, least understood. Yeah. For, from a male perspective. Yeah, certainly. It was. And, yeah. and my, I didn't even tell my psychiatrist until I'd gone public on my blog. Right. Oh, oh wow. really? Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and back and it's still on there now. It says I survived bulimia. I think I wrote it back in two thousand and eight. Wow. Uh, and so that was the last thing I really 
got real uh, with? Unburdened myself of in the shame area sure. was the eating disorder because it is very stigmatized for for women and men, but men especially. Yeah, yeah. Because men are leaders, men are cavemen, men mm-hmm. watch football, men don't starve themselves, and men don't stick their fingers down the throat. Right. That's what women do, right? That's the stigma. That's the stereotype. Right. Despite the fact that most re- the most recent stats tell us that twenty five to thirty percent of all those who have eating disorders are men, wow. yet only one male in ten will seek treatment. Wow. And it's because of that stigma. Did, did it, but was there, I, I feels like there's a lot of courage in doing this and being so open. It feels like you can like today, right now talking to you and listening to you speak, you have no problem talking about any of this stuff. Yeah. And, you're an open book. Yeah. And I just wonder how, what it took to get there or was it always it was like survival? That? Yeah. Was that what it is? You just knew was, you had to do this. It was not courage. It was survival. Mm. Yeah. It was part of my recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, moving through that, moving through that process. And it took me several years to work through the mindset of where I'm going to write the book. Okay. Because one, I didn't want to write it in a way that was going to hurt anyone in my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted my mom to be on board with it. So it had to go through the recovery process itself, the book, because recovery, you go through anger, you go through blame. Yeah. And so I didn't want to write a book that blamed anyone. Mm-hmm. Because no one was responsible for my recovery but me. Yeah. No one, you know, I didn't choose to be an addict, but no one forced me into the situations I put myself in. Mm-hmm. I don't blame family. You know, I don't blame my dealers. I don't blame anyone. I had to write it in a way that explained but not blamed. Yeah. And it took me a while to get there. That's cool. And did you, when, when you first got... In recovery, did you blame people? Did you have to go through that yourself or did you always kind of know? No, I had to go through recovery. I blamed yeah. my mom for my eating disorder. Yeah. And we know parents don't cause eating disorders. I had to work through that and realize that family doesn't cause eating disorders. Yeah. Eating disorders are genetically and biologically based. Wow. And environmental triggers are, you know, there are as many environmental triggers as there are, you know, Digits of pie. (laughs) So there's no way to know what part of the environment is going to trigger what genetic aspect. Mm -hmm. So we don't know the the true cause effect of eating disorders, but we know that there is, you know, there might be a correlation between things that go on in the family, Mm -hmm. but that is not the same as causation. If you know if you're an alcoholic or an addict or cocaine, it's you know where to go. If you have an eating disorder, think you do. What what's what do you do? Like what's you know? Well, you reach out to somebody. Any, you, yeah. You you have to drop that wall of shame and take the first step. Whether it's to whether it's to a friend, whether it's to your parents, mm-hmm. there are all kinds of eating disorder resources out there now, especially not NIDA, the National Eating Disorder Association, Eating Disorder Hope. There are tons of places where you can talk to people. There's a whole advocacy sect on, you know, group on Twitter of people with eating disorders, male and female out there. There are all kinds of places you can go, but you have to want to take that first step. Yeah. So yeah. it's in that. It's the same for addiction. I mean, addiction. Like everything else. Yeah. Same. You you have to want to take that first step. The help is out there. Yeah. And I think uh, because I, I'm, I'm so unfamiliar with, with the, the, issue as, as a whole, I have to think, are you, you think the, 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 uh, the face as it were, the, the biggest figure, uh, um, in male eating disorders? 
I don't know that I'm the biggest figure in male eating disorder. I'm one of the more vocal figures. Well, I guess that's what I'm, I was struggling for. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of celebrities out there who have gone public. They're just not in advocacy. Okay, mm-hmm. I see. And I'm not a celebrity. I just I'm a brother of a celebrity. <laughs> but so I'm I'm one of the more vocal okay. male advocates out there. But there are other ones who are doing a great job. Okay. And what is what is recovery from body dysmorphia? I mean, when you look in the mirror now, um, does recovery affect that perception? Yes. I mean, do you feel like you have a, a grasp on what you really look like? Um, I do. I do. I'm always working on it. I think we're always work. Everyone works works on their self image, right. you know, to some extent every day. Yeah. I mean, we all have normative discontent, right? Everyone looks in the mirror one day or another and says, "Man, that right. just sucks." Yeah, whatever right? it is, sure. Whatever it is, I have a zit, you know, I look a little, have a little less hair today, but right. you know, whatever, right? Everyone goes through that. That's not a disorder. Right. Through a lot of therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance commitment therapy, talk therapy, role playing therapy, I have learned where I can look in the mirror and say, okay, that just is what it is. Yeah. So, sorry about that, guy. That's all right. That, that just that that just is what it is, and and to love myself. Yeah. So that was all a process too. Just just going. It's, it's an ongoing yeah. process. Yeah. It's an ongoing process. Yeah. Yeah. We never finish. <laughs> yeah. We. I mean, addiction. You know. I mean, that's why I go to meetings. It's recovery is an everyday process. Yeah. I mean, it, it it went from one day at a time to one minute at a time when I lost my dog. Yeah. yeah. It's okay to take a step backwards and and mm-hmm. uh, and focus on the minutes. Yeah. And have the presence of mind to say, hey, you know what? I've got to get back into this. I've got to get to a meeting just yeah. to be able to have the self To me, that's always it. Yeah. That's, that's it, like long-term sobriety. The, your reaction to that in your life and knowing I got to get back and get back in the middle of the boat, man, because mm-hmm. you just don't want to take that chance. You, you're it. right. And it was, it, it was an interesting feeling because you can get comfortable in your sobriety. Yeah. Whether yeah. it's eating disorders, drugs, or mm-hmm. uh, alcohol, or whatever – and to have the, these unhealthy thoughts come flowing in, I was like, wow. Where did that come from? Man? Okay, where did that come from? Yeah. Mm. I cannot take my mm. sobriety for granted, whether it's eating disorders, drugs, or alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so I got my butt back into a meeting the next yeah. day. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like The one thing I'm, I'm learning as we, as we do this, um, there are a lot of people that, that go through the 12 steps, they're, they participate in AA or, or whatever uh, XA they're, they're involved with. Um, and at a certain point, they're, they're comfortable and they sort of step out for a while, not even with in a negative sense. They sort of take what they can and leave the rest sort of idea, I guess, or I'm not exactly sure. Of the I, I get, no, that's, that's um, what I call it. And uh, so having, having sort of been away from the rooms for a while, that means you're not, Necessarily, you're not sponsoring or or have a sponsor, or do you in that sort I of situation? Okay, I don't sponsor anyone for alcohol, but I do for eating disorders. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, okay, so you you have a sponsor, and then and that's, I would, no one's asked me. Okay, I, mean, I would sponsor someone. That's I've never been asked. Oh, that's amazing. There you go. Um, that's astounding. <laughs> and with with the experience you have, I'm surprised. Um, but uh, okay, well. Right. I mean, AA, we all have our different views on AA. Yeah. It's a yeah. tool. It's, right. it's a tool that's right for some people and not right for other people. Yeah. yeah. I, it, don't tell, I don't tell anyone how to integrate what they learn there. Yeah. I don't tell anyone how to 
work the program. I can tell them how I work my program. Yeah. I can give them my view points, but I don't force my view on recovery on anybody. Yeah. It's interesting with, uh, I think my social anxiety is what actually kept me out of the rooms when I decided I needed to get to clean up. That's true. And, uh, so I, I, I probably looking back on it is probably ill-advised and a little bit naive, but I decided I was going to figure it out on my own with the help of a therapist and, um, nobody really does it on their own. But, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate that I had a family that let me come, uh, detox and and rehab of my own devising in my uh, sister's bedroom who had just gone off to college. And there's nothing wrong with that. Everyone has their own path and it doesn't have to be a path that includes AA. Mm -hmm. Connections are important. Exactly. And that's, I don't agree with what's that guy's name. I don't I don't agree with his talk at all, but he's right. That connections are important. Yeah. You're talking to Harry, aren't you? Yeah. Harry. Yeah. Yeah. Connections are important, but connections are just one thing. If connections were, if what, what did he say? The I can't remember now. I've, something. If connections were the only thing, the AA success rate would be hundred percent. Right. So his, his theory fails right there. Yeah. Yeah. But connections are important, whether it's an AA family or wherever you find the support. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be an AA. Yeah. 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 I mean, and and you said it. I mean, uh, Jeff and I just came from a meeting. And I I know I can only speak to what works for me um, and, and try to make a point not to tell others, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, what they should be doing because I certainly, I've I've been in and out. I've failed certainly enough times um, to know that I don't have any answers, but I just keep listening. You know, what's funny. I used to say, I used to tell people I've never failed. You know, I've always been sober since I started and I, and I, I realized that I was lying to myself Hmm. Because there were times, I mean, I, I never counted all the times when I said this was the last time. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was using. Right. Yeah. And those are all, you know, times where yeah. I thought I would get sober and didn't. So yeah. I, those would be failures. That's so a good way I never, to look at it. I, I, would ne- I was lying to myself to have this, you know, self-important view of sobriety when, in fact, I went through that like anyone else. Those times where I said this is the last time. And it wasn't <laughs> right. You were, you weren't the, the Brian, the conqueror of recovery. Like the first time I did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just put the yeah. drink down and here we are. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. right. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I just wish it was just that easy. Yeah. What are, are you working on anything, anything new, any new, a uh, new book or new, I mean, I'm, you speak I'm, a lot. New, I'm working on a new book that's going to focus more on getting through school with mental health issues. Oh, fantastic. Because I had to get through both Penn State and law school at Pitt with mental health issues. Wow. So I'll talk more about that. Okay. I'll talk a little bit more about self-harm. Mm-hmm. And so I am working on that. I don't really have a full message for it, but I'm working on it. Sure. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, fantastic. I mean, it takes a while. Yes. I'm sure Most to cook these things. Most of my time right now is spent traveling. I speak at colleges and mm-hmm. I speak at events. Yeah. I know uh, for, for an introvert, you're a fantastic <laughs> speaker. That's, <laughs> how, did, how did that happen? Intro, introversion socially is the different is different than being passionate about what you do. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. You put me you put me in a bar and I'm walking to the corner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You put me in a room full of people that I feel I can save a life. I don't I don't blink an eye. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. There's a phenomena. I don't know. I'm I'm introverted as well. And one on one, two on one, three on one, big problem. One on a hundred. Not a problem. I don't know. I think there's just something about a large group. 
yeah. that yeah, it, it creates a little bit of distance and um, it's not so intimate. Yeah. yeah, that's just my theory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all respond differently, but I have a very difficult time in social situations with large with a large group of people. Yeah, whether it's a reception or whatever, I have a very difficult time with that. But if I'm talking to a group of people about recovery, doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. Well, good. Keep it up, man. That's awesome. And I feel like I should know this. Are you are you going to be in D.C. October? I'm Four? trying to get there. I'm speaking at Lifestyle Intervention that uh, Tuesday. Okay. So I'm trying. I can't say that I am for sure, but I'm trying to work my schedule so that I can go. All right. Well, we're going to keep an eye on your, your Twitter. Yeah. And uh, if you're there, we're going to come there, meet you. Yeah, I would love to if I can get out there. I'm just trying to I'm trying to get working so I can get from D.C. to Vegas. And I'm just not sure yet if I can make it happen. All righty. Um, is there anything? Uh, Any burning desires? Any uh, Any burning desires? Yeah, yeah. As they say. In the, I yeah. love what you guys are doing. And yeah. I mean, the gatekeeper to eating disorders, to addiction, to alcohol, to sub- any kind of substance use disorder, the gatekeeper is shame and stigma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so that's... keep doing what you guys do to break the shame and stigma. And anything I can do to ever help you. Please let me know. Yeah, that's very that's generous. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. And yeah, we'll we'll and, gladly and, reach out again, and uh, I'll I'll try to get the the date right. <laughs> can I pitch my blog and book? Oh, absolutely. Please. That's yeah. That's what I was getting to the the plugs. Great. You can yeah. you can find me at briancuban.com. I also write for psychcentral.com, a blog called Cubanity. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. You can find my book Shattered Image on Amazon.com. Yep, perfect. Shattered image. Yeah, and I'll put uh, I'll put links in the liner notes too. So that sounds great. Excellent. Well, thanks, Brian. And uh, yeah, we we do hope we see you. But if you can't make it, we'll understand. And uh, yeah, hopefully thanks, we'll talk guys. to you again Anything soon. I can ever do for you. Let me know. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks. So thanks so much, Brian. Take care. Take care now. Bye. Bye. Another clean and sober intervention.